Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. And welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Sarah Whitmire. Bob Salzberg is out this week, but he'll be back next week. Co-hosting with me today is Indiana News Desk anchor, Joe Wren. And today we're talking with our guests about the local response to a strange illness that is affecting birds across the state. You can join our conversation today on Twitter at Noon Edition or send us questions using the email news at indianapublicmedia.org. We are still doing the show remotely, so you can't call in with your questions. We've got three guests who are joining us today. Brad Bumgardner is with the Indiana Audubon Society, where he serves as the executive director. Allison Gallette is an ornithologist in the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. Marnie Urso is a senior policy director for Audubon Great Lakes. Thank you all for, for joining us today via Zoom. Hope we have a good conversation today. Allison, um, if you can just get us started, can you tell us what we know right now about this bird illness? Because it seems like this has all happened so suddenly. I think it was less than a month ago when I first heard something about it for the very first time. Yeah, absolutely. So. The way that this started was that first, um, back in, I'd say, late May, early June, we ended up seeing birds with particular symptoms that were pretty consistent among these uh, certain species. So they were eye crustiness and discharge with these neurological symptoms. And when I say neurological symptoms, I mean birds that were seeming like they were stumbling a lot, they seemed disoriented, they were also having issues with being able to hold their heads up properly. So it seemed as if their heads were swelling. And then we were mainly seeing them in birds like common grackles, um, American robins, European starlings, and blue jays. And they were primarily affecting fledglings, but there were some cases of birds with these symptoms in adults. Ever since then, um, so we first learned about it in uh, the Monroe County area from a local wildlife rehabilitator and they notified us that they were starting to see these, uh, I'd say, a, a, an increase in the intake of birds with these symptoms. When we were alerted, we got some samples from them, about 12 carcasses that we were able to send to the Indiana Animal Disease Diagnostics Laboratory. And then we sent them away for testing. And then ever since then, we've been involved in an interagency group trying to figure out what exactly is the root cause of this disease. Yeah, and can you give, can you just give us a sense of the timeline real quick? Because, yeah, that was like mid to late June, I think, when I recall at least seeing the first information from the DNR about it. Right. So our wildlife rehabilitator that alerted us um, about this disease actually started seeing symptoms in uh, common grackles in uh, early May. And they over time realized that there was a pattern to these uh, 
birds with these symptoms. And then they alerted us in late May as to that, you know, they had been taking in these birds. They're increasing in the amount of birds that um, were being seen with these symptoms. Um, and then by uh, early June, that's when we sent in samples. And ever since then, we've been still kind of just trying to track the, the disease as well as work with other agencies to figure it out. So it's been going on for about, I'd say, two months, two and a half months, give or take. Okay. And Brad Baumgartner with the Audubon Society, how is your organization involved and how long have you been sort of on, on the case here? We're trying to figure out what this is as well. Yeah, Indiana Audubon is uh, one of the, the oldest Audubons in the country. And so we've been pretty active in looking at bird-related conservation, natural resource issues. And so as, as soon as we were starting to see uh, the development of this illness and working with the, the DNR and some of the guidances, you know, it's really, we have a, a good role that we're able to spread that information amongst both our membership in the community and uh, particularly some of the, uh, the, the suggestions that we're making, we're able to really help get that information and disseminate it to the public. And then uh, Marnie, just I'm curious how, how you're involved as well. Yeah, so, excuse me, <clears throat> Audubon Great Lakes, we've been, obviously our members are very concerned or fielding a lot of calls with questions as well and working really with the partners across the region. Um, and at the national level, we have a network across the across the country with our field offices. So, um, you know, trying to coordinate with experts like Allison at uh, the Department of Natural Resources and um, reporting them what, what we're seeing in the field. Um, recommending to our members that they take down theaters where it's appropriate, keep an eye out and report anything that they're seeing. So uh, Brad, just going back to you, what were some of your first concerns and questions when you started seeing this illness showing up in birds? Oh, well, it, uh, you know, it had a lot of the, the parallels to some of the issues, of course, that, that we all experienced in the last year, but I'm looking back, uh, you know, about a decade ago to the West Nile virus and some of the impacts that it had uh, similarly with some of the, the corvids or, or blue jays and crow species. And of course, I have a lot of concern for some of the um, larger birds that, that don't nest uh, with as many eggs each year. So it would take a little longer time for a species like this to uh, recover. And those are some of the larger birds of prey, such as hawks and owls. Oh, I, I know originally, you know, Allison was, was saying that this was something that was affecting these smaller songbirds, but have you seen it now in infecting other birds as well? No, not so far. We haven't actually seen um, any sort of symptoms like this in owls or larger birds like other raptors um, and perhaps even like waterfowl or cranes or anything like that. So um, it's primarily been affecting songbirds, birds in the passerine family. Hi, everyone. This is Joe chiming in. Um, I guess my question to start would just be more of what areas are we seeing this or are, is this being reported? And is it kind of like a task force that's going out and looking at these areas and then how much is it spreading? Okay, that, that's a great question. So we've actually been um, monitoring the disease occurrence throughout the state by uh, collecting reports from the public. So our observations have mainly been reliant on public support. 
there has been a huge amount of uh, participation in this online reporting system. And um, mainly they are being reported from more urban areas, which makes sense because there are a lot more people in these areas. Uh, so we are seeing uh, particular um, hotspots, if you will, in areas like Monroe County, uh, Marion County, areas around Louisville, so Clark County, um, also I think around West Lafayette and um, the Fort Wayne area. Uh, but I don't want to disadvantage the other counties that have a lower population density uh, to say that perhaps there is no, no symptoms being seen in these counties just because uh, there is uh, fewer people to actually report it. So we're, we're primarily seeing it in these urban areas, but I kind of look at that data and think um, perhaps there's more to it, uh, mainly because there, there might be what one would call a sampling bias, meaning we're just getting a lot more uh, reports from certain areas than, than we would from other parts, like the more rural areas uh, in the state. Sure, and of course, we're here in Indiana, but is this being reported in other states as well? Absolutely. So we've actually had, it started off in DC. Um, that was where it was first detected, and then it was found in um, the surrounding kind of like Delmarva Peninsula area, so Delaware, um, Maryland, um, and Virginia. And then from there, it was also being seen in New Jersey as well as Pennsylvania. Um, and then uh, after that, we started seeing it in the Midwest, so Indiana, um, Kentucky, and Ohio, and I think Tennessee is starting to get some reports here and there, um, ever since people have become more informed about it. Brad, you mentioned West Nile and how this was not West Nile. How, how have folks been able to rule that out? And how are the symptoms and different? Well, certainly, uh, Allison can explain more of the testing procedure, but, you know, one of the things that we did see with West Nile was a sort of kind of a neurological disorder where birds are often dazed and confused and you could literally pick them up. And, and we are seeing some neurological disorders with this illness, but in addition to that, we're seeing some of the, the physical symptoms, uh, the crusty eye, the redness, even leading up to blindness. And so that's something that, that clearly dif differentiates it from, say, West Nile virus. Um, Allison, can you talk a little bit more? We, do, we just keep referring to this as this mysterious illness that's killing birds. What is being done to figure out what this is and what have you been able to rule out? Yeah, um, those are great questions. So we have had a process that we've been working with um, other agencies. So we call it an interagency group uh, where all these different states that have been affected plus um, partners with the National Wildlife Health Center, they're the ones who really are the ones who have been leading this group, um, plus the Smithsonian and other academic um, institutions like UPenn uh, and uh, Purdue with their Indiana Animal Di Disease Diagnostics Laboratory have all been kind of trying to help and figure out um, what's been going on by sharing how they're tracking the disease, as well as um, trying to share results on what we are seeing. So it's not just like uh, us sharing results on um, how the disease is perhaps spreading through um, each of our regions, but also the pathology labs have been working together and they have a, oftentimes we have a pathology report uh, at, at our weekly meetings where they discuss all the different findings and what they've ruled out. 
And so far, we have been able to get to a conclusion where we can rule out avian influenza. We can rule out West Nile virus and other flaviviruses, which are uh, viruses that cause encephalitis, the swelling of the brain. Um, and then Salmonella and Chlamydia are bacterial pathogens. Those have been ruled out, as well as Newcastle's disease virus and other paramyxoviruses. Newcastle's disease is in this group called paramyxoviruses, so those have been ruled out. Um, herpes virus and pox viruses have also been ruled out, as well as trichomonas parasites. But we're still, there's so many things out there that could possibly be causing this. Not just disease, like not just bacteria or um, viruses, but also fungi or some sort of environmental contaminant. So it's a really difficult, um, and hence I think mystery is a, a good term to use for this because we really need to kind of figure out, um, look at all the different angles of this disease to, to really get at the root cause. We got a question, I think, based off of um, you saying that it was first found along the East Coast, but someone said, is it safe to say then that the illness is spreading? And uh, what does that tell us about it? Right. So I think, um, first and foremost, we don't know exactly whether it's contagious or not, because we don't know the cause of the disease. So I, I feel hesitant to say that it's is spreading in that sense. Um, it, perhaps what one could think is that it is um, because DC were the ones who first detected it that um, we as a result became more informed and the knowledge of it spread to us, uh, which allowed us to be able to detect that it wasn't in our environment. So it might have been here for some time and it might have not been, I would say, it might have not been spreading so to speak, um, because again, we don't know whether it's contagious. Uh, so um, I wanna I wanna say like we don't know enough to really understand how it's distributed, whether it's spreading or not. And Brad, can you talk a little bit about why it is that songbirds maybe are more vulnerable than some of the some of the larger bird species? Well, a lot of our, our songbirds, uh, particularly ones that we call neotropic migrants, uh, perform you know massive migrations every year. And we're looking at you know the upcoming fall season where literally four billion birds will be flying through Canada to uh, the southern United States or even farther down to Central and South America. So these birds go through really a Herculean effort every single year uh, as they try to survive and, and as they run this gauntlet of, of human influences, you know, you just add a, another obstacle to them and uh, we'll, we continue to see these declines in birds and it may not appear so year to year, but when you look at the trends, 25, 30 years, we, we're seeing significant declines. And so everything that we add to that uh, further um, uh, really adds to the problems that they have that they go through in, in trying to survive and, and breed and, and keep the species going. Yeah, and I'd like to um, just echo that, Brad. It's a really particularly poignant time to be talking about the health of birds. You know, we science, the journal Science published that unprecedented study a couple of years ago that we've lost 3 billion birds uh, since 1970 across North America. Um, and so that's one out of four. And a lot of those are these backyard birds that we see at the theaters, right? So there's a lot of, a lot of threats that they're facing. Audubon Science is showing that three quarters of the birds in North America are at risk from extinction due to climate change. And 
you know, birds are indicator species. There are um, barometers of environmental health. So we really do need to be paying attention um, when, when, when they're showing us there's something wrong. Yeah, Marnie, I, th I think you've, you're just touching on this now, but maybe uh, can get in a little bit deeper into the fact of, you know, how, what's the greater effect of losing, you know, more birds have on us or on our, on our environment? Well, I mean, you know, Audubon likes to say where birds thrive, people prosper. They really are, um, you know, their success is directly connected to ours. So um, investing in conservation and um, taking action on public policy around things like climate change that are a huge threat to birds, wildlife, and people are really important right now. So we are just want, you know, everyone to, you know, connect those dots that the actions that our decision makers are making are having a, a direct um, cumulative impact on the birds and wildlife in Indiana. You know, we had another phenomenon this past year too, and that's the cicadas. Could that possibly have anything to do with it? Does anyone want to jump in on that? <laughs> yeah, sure. I would but, defer um, cicadas to Allison. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've been getting a lot of questions about that. That's for sure. Um, I think that there is there the reason why there um, have been thoughts about cicadas as the cause of this is because of the timing the timing was just so perfect for when the songbird disease was detected at first with the timing of the uh, the emergence of the brood 10 uh, cicadas and uh, as a result people have been thinking oh probably it's the fungus it's the fungus that affects them and causes neurological issues um, it's also perhaps maybe pesticides that are being sprayed to control the cicadas, um, especially around suburban and urban areas. Um, but those things are being looked at currently uh, through the National Wildlife Health Center and through all their partner labs. And no direct link has been made between those two. We're also seeing that uh, the states and the regions that are getting more involved and um, uh, seeing more reports of this disease are a bit outside of the range of that brood Ten cicada species. So um, that that link is becoming a little weaker as we're learning more. That's interesting because that is something I read so much about. I think early on, a lot of people were assuming it was because birds ate too many cicadas. I was hearing a lot. So <laughs> I'm glad yeah, you're absolutely. able to address it. And they've even been looking at perhaps maybe, uh, you know, if they were eating too much as, you know, a vitamin deficiency, for example, because they were just eating too much of one thing. <laughs> so th those things have been thought about and they are being looked at right now. Okay, today we're talking about this mysterious bird illness. It's uh, killing birds across the Midwest and it's, it's spreading to some states are being discovered more frequently. You can join us today um, on Twitter at Noon Edition or send us questions using the email news at indianapublicmedia.org. Can't call in today because we are still doing the show remotely. So Brad, um, I had another question for you just about more, more, I guess, what bird watchers and people can do, because I know you mentioned, you know, people taking down their feeders, but I've seen people then um, just sprinkle the seed all over their yard. So I'm assuming that's not what people should be doing. And maybe you can explain that and sort of the rationale behind taking behind taking down feeders. 
Yeah, absolutely. Since we're still learning so much about what this is, what's causing it, how is it spreading, a great precaution we can do is is a, a similar precaution that we were doing a year ago, social distancing. And so if we're looking at where it could be potentially spreading, we don't want the birds to be gathering artificially that they wouldn't be normally doing in the wild. And so that includes bird feeders, songbird feeders, hummingbird feeders, even water features if you got a bird bath or, uh, in your backyard. And so these are places that birds are then gathering. And so it doesn't have to be a traditional feeder like a, a hopper or a tube feeder. Even sprinkling food on the ground is bringing birds together artificially that they wouldn't normally be doing in the wild where you have food sources that are dispersed through the prairies and wetlands and forests. And so that's the biggest thing that we're trying to spread right now is to get folks to take your feeders down. Uh, let's give it a little bit of break. Let's, let's reduce the chances that birds are going to be gathering together. It could potentially be spreading this illness. Okay. So then a question I got from one of my neighbors was then these birds are still coming to my windows and they look like they're hungry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there may be a little bit of anthropomorphizing if birds are around and some of the emotions they're expressing to us. But, uh, you know, birds get used, just like us, you know, we know where our food is. You know, when you get up and you go to the fridge. And so the birds have learned where some of the food sources are. But, you know, as, as food comes and wanes, birds are pretty adaptable. They move around. They find where the next food source is. And this is a time of year where there is an abundance of food. There are lots of insects and caterpillars. And, and literally about 99% of the birds of Indiana feed their young, these insects, uh, caterpillars, or berries. They don't feed them seeds. And so it's really just kind of a supplemental seed right now. Uh, bird feeding is really more for us. It brings us to joy. It allows us to see the birds, connect with the birds. It's not necessary for the birds. There's lots of food out there, and that'll continue through the summer and fall season. So there really isn't a, a negative impact that we're going to have by removing our feeds, uh, cedars, feeders temporarily, and the, and the birds will quickly find uh, some other food sources as they're probably running a circuit already as they're feeding throughout the day. Yeah, they'll come back and they're not going to be mad or hold a grudge. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, we got a question from Laura and she says, what do we do if we find a dead bird? Is there an agency we should report it to? Yes, so if there are dead birds being found, um, we recommend first looking for those particular symptoms that uh, I've talked about, which are the eye crustiness, uh, eye swelling, and um, perhaps any sort of discharge. Uh, and then uh, um, once those symptoms have been confirmed, then we recommend reporting uh, that those dead birds to us through our online reporting system. The DNR actually has a wildlife health reporting tool um, that uh, you can simply use a normal search engine and find it pretty quickly and then report it to us. And I um, have um, been vetting those those reports uh, over time, and we've been getting about I'd say I think we're up to twenty six hundred reports now over the past two weeks. So there's been great public participation. Here in Monroe County, we have a place called Wild Care Inc. And I know in our newsroom, we've learned of a few people who have um, brought these birds in and shoe boxes or tried to help them, and then taken them to Wild Care Inc. Is that something you should do or what should people, should people be trying to nurse these birds or do anything? 
I would recommend to definitely have a permitted wildlife rehabilitator be able to take care of them. Wildcare has been a great resource. Uh, they were actually the ones who informed us of this uh, in the first place. Um, so uh, they've been able to look at the symptoms and see what is, um, I guess, do some triage and see what um, can be worked on with these birds and what cannot, um, and then provide us uh, the possibility for being able to send samples uh, to the lab if they are exhibiting those symptoms to better figure out what's going on. So should individual people not be handling them then? Should you wait, should you try to get somebody from, to, who's a professional to come out and get the bird? Or I guess I just wanna make sure we're clear because we, people have been, we have gotten at least one question about it. Yeah, that we recommend typically if you do end up finding a sick bird, um, because the wildlife rehabilitators are, I'd say pretty busy, especially at this time of the year with sick birds and fledglings and uh, lots of young wildlife um, that you, if you do have to get them off the landscape, if handling is necessary, always protect yourself and wear gloves. Cause I don't, I think people will want to get those birds to the rehabber because it's very important that um, time is of the essence in these cases. So wear gloves, have them in a box, bring them over to wild care and then they will assess the situation. If they have the time and can come get it, then ask them, absolutely ask them um, and see if uh, that opportunity exists. Just a quick follow-up to that then. You said time is of the essence. If we don't know what this is, is there is there really anything that can be done once it's been identified that these birds do have this mysterious illness? Yeah, on an individual basis, usually, unfortunately, a lot of these birds have to be euthanized because of the, the fact that they are just so far, their just symptoms are so um, developed that they uh, don't have any sort of quality of life anymore after that because they're, they're pretty much, some of them end up being blind. Um, so, um, but despite that, I mean, you're, Euthanasia sometimes is an option. And then if it's in the hands of the wildlife rehabilitators, they are working with us to be able to, um, you know, collect samples that are testable so that we can figure out what's, what's causing this disease. So they have been very valuable in that sense as well. Just wondering too about this disease, of course, don't know. I know this is something still being looked into, but in terms of being contagious with, you know, gardens, uh, humans, other animals, maybe cats, is, is there any concern about that right now at the moment? Especially if maybe people see, you know, birds in their in their garden per se, or maybe their cat catches a, a bird. Yeah, we ac we actually recommend that people, if they do see birds with these symptoms, to avoid those areas. Um, so to keep pets away from birds. Um, that are sick, uh, that's including cats and dogs, um, and then to even just, I'd say just keep away from the area until you stop seeing birds with those symptoms. Brad, I just want to ask you, maybe you can talk a little bit more and pick up where Allison left off just about what is happening in these birds' bodies when they have this illness. 
Well, you know, right now what we're, we're seeing is, is the main symptoms is, is this crusty eye appearance, this redness, which, which can then progress to a blindness, which superficially also can look like uh, another illness that we have with birds that's a little more well-known, that's conjunctivitis. And uh, we see that more particularly just with the finches and not as widespread as we're seeing. But then as you start to look at neurological disorders, this is where it can come off as they are dazed, they're confused, they they don't really, they're disoriented. A lot of times then we're seeing is that that they're even their their heads are kind of laying down like the, like they're almost passing out and it's in really kind of unnatural positions. And so those are kind of the, the number one symptoms that we're observing right now that, that people can be on the lookout for. I want to get um, Marnie back involved in the conversation here. Marnie, you do a lot of advocating for policy. So given this illness, um, I'm curious, is, how is that going to change um, how you advocate for different policies and your maybe your plans for policy in the coming year? Um, I think it's just been a reminder that um, birds and wildlife, you know, uh, rely on us to um, pay attention. And part of that is addressing the threats that they face. So um, again, they're a really important um, indicator species, literally canaries in the coal mine, right? So um, it's really important to pay attention and we're gonna continue to just advocate for conservation, funding for conservation and habitat protection. Uh, unfortunately, the Indiana legislature rolled back wetlands protection and put 400,000 acres of wetland at risk. That's really important habitat. For the birds in Indiana. So we want to encourage um, the state legislature to really pay attention. There's an Indiana Wetlands Task Force that has been formed that's going to come up with some recommendations to how to best, you know, bring some scientific-based uh, approach to how we're managing those important habitats. So we really, you know, we should get some information from that next year. And we really encourage folks to encourage their lawmakers to listen to that task force um, and hopefully make improvements on policies that can protect wetland habitat, for instance, which has, you know, has declined um, greatly across the Great Lakes region. So we really should be protecting more of it and not putting more of it at risk. So as I mentioned before, climate change is the biggest threat to birds, um, according to Audubon Science. So we um, are encouraging folks to contact their decision makers to take action on climate change uh, right now. There is a bill that just passed in the U.S. Senate called the Growing Climate Solutions Act that was championed by um, Indiana Senator Braun, supported by Senator Young, um, bipartisan. It passed um, by a huge margin, um, bipartisan vote that encourages foresters and farmers to be a part of the solution. Um, that's a huge opportunity in Indiana, which has 80% of its land dedicated to some sort of forest and forester uh, woodlands um, or agriculture. So we have a great opportunity there in the House to pass that legislation. Thankful for Congressman Hollingsworth for supporting that. And we just would encourage the rest of the Indiana delegation to step up and do the same so we can take steps to move forward to take action on things like climate change, which is a huge threat for birds in Indiana. I'm glad you mentioned the wetlands protections that the lawmakers passed this session. It was something I was going to ask you about because um, your organization did lobby against it. And then also the Climate Solutions Act, your organization has been praising that. But given these recent events here, how optimistic are you for the fate of key indicator species like birds? 
you mean overall or in Indiana? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, yeah. I, th- you, I mean, I think in Indiana, certainly you got to talk about the Wetlands sure. Act and just how many of our bird species live in these wetlands where it's now going to be easier to build and, and farm in them. Yeah, well, again, we um, encourage folks to stay in contact with their state house representatives and state house senators on this bill. Um, there was an overwhelming outpouring of, of voices, diverse voices that got engaged on that in a way that, you know, we haven't seen before. So I'm encouraged that the people, you know, Hoosiers are paying attention to this. They care about this. They want their lawmakers to do the right thing um, for the state of Indiana. And that's more protection, not less for, for wetland habitat. So I'm encouraged that, um, you know, that wetlands task force was not part of the original bill. Um, the original bill would, would strip away an additional 200,000 acres thanks to the outpouring of um, concerned citizens. We were able to scale that back a little bit, but we, we still need to make some improvements on that. So again, I just would encourage folks to let their lawmakers know that we, they need to heed what the uh, ta- Wetlands Task Force is saying and keep that conversation moving Indiana forward, not backwards. Another question we got in that's kind of a two-parter, I think, for you, Marnie, but what are the main reasons for the drastic decrease in birds since the 1970s? And second part, why haven't lawmakers done something to address that? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a it's a cumulative impact. Um, a habitat loss is a big part of that. Um, Audubon believes that, you know, a changing climate and changing habitats is, is, is having a, a big impact as well. So it's there's not one silver bullet solution to it. So um, a lot of organizations are advocating for a lot of different things. So part of that is things like the Growing Climate Solutions Act. Um, there's another bill in Congress called the Recovering America's Wildlife Act um, that would really go a long way in getting uh, fund federal funding to state agencies uh, like Indiana DNR to enact wildlife action plans that we, they already have in place. They just don't have the money to fund. So um, we would really encourage that. That's a really wonderful piece of legislation that's been introduced. Um, Again, that's Recovering America's Wildlife Act. That's a federal bill that um, we're advocating for as well. All right, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. We're talking with three guests about what we know so far about the illness killing songbirds in the Midwest. We have about 15 minutes left, so you can join the live chat by tweeting at Noon Edition or emailing us news at indianapublicmedia.org. Of course, since we're doing the show remotely today, you still can't call in, but we do look forward to hearing from you. Um, I didn't want to kind of continue this discussion about policy and and lawmaking, and maybe we can get to... uh, Allison, uh, on this as well, because I've just thought, you know, your organization and maybe plans that that you've been talking with for policy and advocacy for birds in the coming year, especially now that the illness is spreading. Right. So um, when it comes to the Indiana DNR, um, my specific role as the state ornithologist is to specifically Uh, conserve species that are listed as state endangered or of special concern. Um, And a lot of our uh, work is mainly based off of um, donations to our Indiana non-game wildlife fund. Uh, So um, a lot of the work uh, is not funded by state money. It actually comes from uh, donations from Hoosiers like uh, our, your listeners. 
um, as well as um, that money is then used for uh, providing federal match, uh, which means it's the, the money that we get once we've determined that Hoosiers are really interested in the work that we do in conserving these state listed species. Then uh, the federal government says, oh, okay, you guys have a lot of support from your, your citizens. Here's, here's money to support your programs. Um, so we're really reliant on being able to um, have that support from, from the public about um, particular federal legislation that gets passed, like the Recovering America's Wildlife Act that Marnie ended up talking about. That's a huge piece of legislation um, that would affect uh, the Indiana Department of Natural Resources um, in supporting uh, habitat management for wildlife, um, supporting the conservation of declining species, as well as helping to better improve our public lands uh, for recreationalists, hunters, things like that. Uh, so um, I definitely think that people should be remain informed about what's going on um, uh, because it really does affect uh, how our, our agencies are able to really manage for wildlife and for people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Brad, I assume you're the same. Absolutely, yeah. So, so Brad, could you talk about what you see as sort of the best case scenario here? Like how, what happens next and yeah, what, what could be the best outcome? <laughs> yeah, so the best case scenario is, is identifying what is causing this illness because then, you know, that is where then we can take the next steps to start to, to minimize or mitigate uh, the illnesses or deaths that we're actually seeing. It allows us to better educate the public on things that they need to do. And, and I think for a lot of our uh, Audubon membership, it also may uh, provide an opportunity for people to put their feeders back up because that's really how they are connecting to birds. And it is that connection that, uh, that builds a love and uh, compassion and, and helps to protect the birds. Another question that we got is when people take down their feeders, do they need to do anything to sanitize them or clean them in the interim period? Yes, definitely. Uh, we want you to, to take them down and you want to clean them thoroughly. So we're looking about a 10% uh, bleach solution. That way we can uh, really sterilize it, make sure there's uh, no potential uh, viral or bacterial infectants that are on there, and then, then take them down. Because if you put the feeders back up and say, well, I've cleaned my feeders, I know I'm not spreading the disease, it only takes one sick bird to be right back on it, and then you just, uh, the illness is back there, if, if that is the, you know, the way that it is transmitting. And so you really want to take them down and keep them down for the time being. Don't just clean them and put them back up and think that you'll be able to keep cleaning them regularly. That really won't uh, uh, help the situation. It seems like that COVID comparison really is accurate as you're saying things like that, Brad. It's kind of crazy. So it's, you know, it's, it's looking at, you know, an illness and, and these are just basic things that you would do for health and safety. And so obviously the, the, the illness or disease could be different, you know, whether it was bacterial or viral or different viruses, you're still a response and things that you're going to be doing for health and safety are going to be really similar. We got a question. I'm sorry, go ahead. I don't want to cut yeah, you off, Allison. Absolutely. So we, we really just want birds to be able to socially distance. They need the ability to naturally um, be able to forage apart from each other. Of course, they're going to naturally flock together when sometimes when they forage, they'll be in family groups. Um, but 
when it comes to feeders, usually there's uh, higher concentrations of birds in one very specific location. Um, and that increases the in interaction between uh, individual birds of different species too. So it's, it could potentially cause transmission between species that would normally not congregate with each other. Um, and then um, that perhaps, again, if it's contagious and spread that way, um, will worsen the situation. Brad, we got a question about just how quickly birds are getting sick and how quickly they're dying. And then the, the next question is, do we have to worry about songbirds going extinct? So perhaps you can take it first and then Allison, you can chime in too. Yeah, I, I don't think we're looking at an extinction level event. Uh, you know, illnesses and disease uh, move through populations. And in some ways, uh, you know, natural disease is, is a check on populations. And uh, but, uh, you know, since we don't know what the cause is, that's where, you know, we have more concern. We don't know the extent of how widespread, how uh, potentially contagious something could be, and then what the total uh, ramifications or effect is going to be until we can identify that. Uh, but, you know, it starts out small and you never know what, what an illness might do. But uh, birds, uh, as we're saying, are resilient, just as we are too. And so do I look for an extinction level thing? No, I don't. But I think there are certain species that are getting hit the hardest, such as those corvids, uh, American robins, that, you know, they, they will lose some of those numbers. And, and so the biggest concern, as I mentioned, uh, some of the larger birds, if it were to spread to those, but also things that are more uh, um, endangered, threatened, where they're populations are already low. Brad, yeah, you mentioned. Echo. Oh, go ahead, please, Allison. <laughs> I would echo Brad's thoughts. I think that it's definitely not an extinction level event. Um, these birds are quite common and they do experience disease normally uh, throughout their lifetimes. Uh, they will ebb and flow and they are definitely disease is a population check. Um, and um, I think we've experienced other diseases in the past that have pretty negative effects on birds, uh, specifically like house finch conjunctivitis, um, house finch eye disease, which took out a very large proportion of the house finch population in the United States. And they are still around. They are still you know, coming to our feeders. They still experience the disease, um, and which it makes me want to um, like encourage people to continue uh, if they choose to feed birds to always clean the feeders with 10% bleach um, at least once a month. Um, and then they do bounce back. But again, the reason why we're so concerned is mainly because we don't know the root cause of this disease. We don't know whether it's transmitted to other uh, wildlife. So far, it hasn't been observed. Um, but since there's just so little that we know about it, it's better to take the biggest, I'd say the really like the cautious approach um, just in case. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, both of you mentioned larger birds, uh, two that come to mind. I don't think we've talked about poultry and I know a lot of people have chickens in their backyards. Uh, any correlation there or issues yet with poultry? No, we haven't been getting any specific uh, symptoms that look like that in poultry. There have been reports from backyard flock owners. Um, however, when the, since poultry, uh, their livestock is regulated by the Board of Animal Health, we've been referring them to the Board of Animal Health and they have been doing their own testing. And there has been no connection between um, the songbird disease and poultry. 
And then I was thinking too of Eagles, which, you know, now have made a comeback of sort. Has that been looked into? So far, we have not had any reports of any uh, raptors that have mm -hmm. been seen with these, these particular symptoms. So if I could jump in just to echo the, um, the story that birds are resilient and with people's help, they are able to recover. You know, we've seen, um, you know, this disease might not be a, an extinction event, but things like climate change are just as DDT potentially was, you know, uh, years and years ago. So what happens is people get together, they take action, they encourage their policymakers to pay attention, and we're able to make change. So um, I just had to chime in because also you met, you mentioned poultry. Um, we just issued an op-ed in, in DSTAR about the uh, Growing Climate Solutions Act, which they also support. So I just wanted to chime in again and encourage people to continue to talk to their lawmakers. Um, uh, you know, this is, uh, it's very concerning because we don't know what this disease is, but we do know the threats that birds are facing in other areas as well. So, you know, it's important to um, continue to push for protection and take action on, on important public policies like Growing Climate Solutions Act uh, and conservation habitat policies. And Marnie, we did get a question from a listener wondering if there are other things we do maybe inadvertently that hurt the birds um, other than, you know, you're advising people to take down feeders, but are there other things that people do that don't, real, don't realize are a problem and they should really be careful right now? Well, I would just say in, in general to, uh, you know, when you are, if you're talking about things in your backyard, um, Audubon encourages folks to use native habit, native plants. We have a website called Plants for Birds um, that you can go to and find out what's healthy to, to have in your backyard for birds and wildlife. So things like that, you know, using certain, certain um, chemicals might, could be harmful potentially to, to birds or the insects that they, you know, need. So would encourage folks to you know, consider that as well. I don't know about a connection to this disease, but just generally speaking, again, there are things we can be doing proactively to help birds overall. And Brad or Allison, um, either one of you can probably take this one. This is from Jim and he says, we have a few nesting boxes, including an Eastern bluebird nesting in one of them currently. What should we do? I think your, your, your bluebirds will be okay because they are uh, essentially living within their bubble. So they have uh, uh, their own little family unit, uh, but you know, it's, it's where that family member goes and then meets with uh, another family, say congregating at a feeder. Bluebirds do visit feeders. They, they will come to uh, mealworms or waxworms that people put out. And so, you know, if you're still doing the, the basic taking down your feeder, then having the bluebird boxes up where you have the nesting going on should be okay. And so far, we haven't actually seen any uh, reports of symptoms like this in bluebirds. Okay. Um, another question we got is about eagles and wondering how do you know if it hasn't gotten into their population? Are you checking on known nests? Yes, we actually do check on nests, but it hasn't really been checking on nests for the purpose of um, investigating the songbird disease. Uh, eagles typically during the, um, during the breeding season eat either carrion, which are just like roadkill, dead things um, in the environment, 
or they'll eat fish. They eat a lot of fish. So um, their dietary specifications aren't necessarily perhaps making them more uh, susceptible to the songbird disease or not um, hanging out around large populations of songbirds to eat them. So, um, but we do, uh, going back to the nest observations, we do monitor eagle nests um, through the Indiana DNR, mainly just to get a good pulse on how their population is doing. And so far, ever since the reintroduction in 1985 to 1989, they've been doing excellent. They've been um, pretty much, I think, uh, they went from having no nests to having, we have around more than 400 nests reported in the state so far. We only have about three minutes left and Brad and Marnie, I wanna give you all the, the remaining time, but um, to just talk about what are some things people should be advocating for on a larger scale with corporations and with their policymakers if, if they wanna protect birds. You wanna, you wanna go first, Brad? Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, actually, Marty had mentioned something about native plants, and I've actually seen those comments now in some of the social media forums where people have said, yeah, I took down my feeders, and now there's no birds around, and I realize I don't have any plantings for the birds so that I still can't see them. And so, you know, if you're if you're looking for things that you can do on the local level, things like buying uh, native species of plants is a great way to do that. Uh, getting involved with a lot of the nonprofit organizations. It's not just groups like our Indiana Audubon, which of course you can join or donate at indianaaudubon.org, but you have land trusts around the state, Nature Conservancy, the Indiana DNR, lots of different organizations that are advocating and doing programs and initiatives that help birds both on the state and local level. Yeah, and just to echo that, Brad, you know, we, um, Audubon has, uh, I believe it's uh, 11 chapters throughout the state. And then there's also Indiana Audubon Society, which is its own organization. And so I just would encourage everyone to um, get involved locally with, with their Audubon chapter um, or with your local conservation organization. Uh, more information on Audubon Great Lakes, which is the regional office for the National Audubon Society, can be found at gl.audubon.org. I always like to spell Audubon because it is easy to confuse. So it's gl.audubon.org. Um, you can sign up for action alerts um, to get um, stay in the loop on things like uh, you know state policy in Indiana on conservation funding um, and habitat conservation. Okay, and Allison, just in the meantime, people should keep reporting any sick birds, keep their feeders down and you'll keep us updated on, on what people can do next? Yes, absolutely. We actually have a landing page on our website. Um, if you uh, use your search engine and use the term of Indiana songbird deaths, Indiana DNR, um, you can get up-to-date information as to what counties have been affected as well as um, what specific uh, diseases have been ruled out uh, regarding the cause. Okay, great. Well, thanks to all three of you for being here today. We are out of time. Um, so thanks to our listeners for joining us for today's noon edition. I want to thank our guests again and for co-host Joe Wren, our producers Ben Boothier and John Bailey. I'm Sarah Whitmire. This has been Noon Edition.
Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.